This week was one of those weeks where the news never stops. A new COVID spike in Albany County. The Saratoga Racecourse made opening. Governor Andrew Cuomo says schools can open if the infection rate is under 5% in a stage 4 region. Suffice it to say, it was all hands on deck in the newsroom for the last seven days. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top stories in the Times Union. The region has experienced positive coronavirus tests, the likes of which we haven't seen in a couple of weeks. And the story of how 23andMe united a man from Minerva with a daughter he never knew he had. I wasn't sure, I what, to, I wasn't sure what to expect. You know? There's this pretty blonde-haired lady sitting there, you know? This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what we covered in the Times Union this week. I am here once again with the inimitable Times Union editor, Casey Seiler. A lot has happened this week. There's a lot of news, a lot of things to talk about. So we'll try to distill it to the most important topics here. We'll start with the fact that our region has experienced a pretty big COVID spike and that it can be traced to a massive college party in the city. So where are we with that? Yeah, the um, county executive, Daniel McCoy, announced over the course of the past two days that the region has experienced positive coronavirus tests, the likes of which we haven't seen in a couple of weeks since we were sort of descending the, you know, the slope of, uh, of infections. It's very important for everyone that was at huge gatherings like this that weren't social distancing. Please go get tested, wear a mask. Protect the people around you. Uh, no, we're not trying to scare people. No, we're not trying to, uh, you know, make this bigger than it is. But these are the setbacks that are going to continue to put us in the wrong direction. And many of them have been linked to this party that was held on Hudson Avenue that is in a part of downtown Albany that is referred to as the student ghetto. It's kind of right between the uh, College of St. Rose campus and uh, what's known as the downtown U Albany campus. A big student zone. Apparently there was a um, July 4th party that was held and many of the infections that the county is now registering can be connected to that. And um, it's just a reminder that the virus is still very much out there. This is, of course, the same week that we are hearing more about folks who are flouting the state's quarantine laws when they return or visit from states where there are spikes. We're now up to more than 20 states that are now required, uh, if you are coming from those states, to New York, you have to go through a self-quarantine of, of two weeks. So the battle goes on despite um, the, the kind of victory lap that's being taken by um, some state uh, elected officials. Yes, and we'll be watching that. The county executive has been giving a press conference every day, so we'll have updated numbers and hopefully it'll get better from here. 
Now, another big story that we've been following for years now, um, the very tragic limo crash, there was uh, supposed to be a plea deal this week. What happened with that? Well, the uh, families of the victims in the October 2018 limo crash are very, very concerned that there are plea deal negotiations ongoing for Nauman Hussein, who is the young operator of Prestige Limousine, that's the company that owned the stretch SUV that was involved in that in that horrible accident, which still, I believe, stands as the worst traffic-related accident in a decade of U.S. history. The concern is that um, Hussein would be allowed to plead guilty and essentially do no jail time. He has, he has served virtually no time behind bars, even after his initial arrest a couple of days after the crash. Uh, Larry Rulison, who has been our stalwart reporter on this story for you know, almost two years now, noted that there are challenges that Susan Mallory, who is the district attorney in Schoharie County, faces. There was some concern that the involvement of Mavis Discount Auto could make it far more difficult for the district attorney to actually get a guilty verdict. It is without a doubt a very complex case. As it happened, there was a court conference involving Hussein's attorneys and the prosecutor and the judge, the county judge in the case. They uh, met behind closed doors virtually, I believe, and uh, nothing public was announced afterwards. So we'll we'll have to continue to follow that in the weeks ahead. Well, segueing to another trial that we had been following closely, uh, there is some news in the Nexium case this week. What's going on? So Rob Gavin, who is who has been covering the Nexium case for us all the way back, including gavel to gavel coverage of the trial of Keith Ranieri, the leader uh, of Nexium, known within the organization as Vanguard. Of course, he was convicted a little bit more than a year ago on a broad range of charges. He faces the possibility in life in prison when he's sentenced. His sentencing has been delayed by the coronavirus pandemic. And Rob was tipped off to the fact that outside the federal uh, um, facility, correctional facility in Brooklyn, there had been a group of people dancing, performing, sending best wishes, holding up play cards of support, for somebody named Kay Rose. And of course, there is nobody named Kay Rose incarcerated in uh, the Brooklyn federal lockup or anywhere else in the federal system for that matter. And Rob was tipped off and um, video that he showed to former Nexium members who have fallen away from the true faith as it were, revealed that the people taking part in it were what you might call Nexium dead enders, you know, supporters of Keith Raniere, who um, who are still walking around. Initially, they did not want to reveal their connections to Nexium. Just on Wednesday evening, they essentially put out a statement that said, "Yes, we're in this because we hate mass incarceration. Yes, we're doing this because the men and women behind bars in Brooklyn are facing the peril of the disease." But uh, the former Nexium members who uh, took a look at these videos were pretty appalled that um, at the brazenness of the level of support for Raniere, who's a guy who has been convicted of some fairly horrible things. There's certainly no shortage of intrigue in this story, and you can hear more about the update this week 
uh, from UKC as well as from court reporter Rob Gavin on our other podcast, our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial. And go to timesunion.com to see that. Changing subjects, once again, we've got two more topics to cover here. Uh, there's a story out of Kinderhook this week that is a bit baffling. Uh, a man was beaten up at the home of a sheriff's deputy, but it goes deeper than that. So can you kind of give us the story here? Yeah, and it's really, uh, it's signified by these signs that have been popping up all around Kinderhook and the, you know, the surrounding area that it's a, a simple hashtag that says justice for Harold. And Harold is Harold Handy, who was um, apparently at a July 4th party and under circumstances that are not fully clear to us at this point, was badly injured to the point that he was rushed to Albany Medical Center with significant injuries. Uh, just a couple of days after uh, Mr. Handy was, was injured, uh, state police did a search of the home where he came to grief, which is owned by a gentleman named Alec uh, Rosenstrach. And uh, he is the owner of a gym called Club Life Health and Fitness in Kinderhook. He was in the news a couple of months ago for opening up his gym in violation of state regulations concerning what businesses could reopen in the face of the, of the pandemic. His wife works for the Columbia County Sheriff's Office. She is, I believe, a deputy. So, of course, there were lots of questions as to why there have so far, as of this, this taping, been no arrests in this case. Um, so Ken Crow wrote about it. We're hoping to learn more in the days and weeks to come, but there we are. All right. Well, last big news item of the week, although the week's not over yet, uh, the track, Saratoga Racecourse, has opened, albeit a little early and in a little bit of an unusual way. Uh, what's going on up there? Well, the horses are running, but there are no fans in the stands or only a couple. It feels at once very different and um, very much the same. Of course, our outstanding team that includes Wendy Libertor, who's our Saratoga County reporter, the award-winning Tim Wilkin, our fantastic turf writer, and Skip Dickstein, who uh, is a former full-time staff photographer of ours, although we bring him back every year for his uh, track coverage, which is second to none. They're all up there. Their, their work is, of course, more important than ever in the sense that they are the eyes and ears of the public uh, in a year when the public is unfortunately not in the stands. So um, we'll be back up there this weekend and we'll be talking with folks in Saratoga about what it's like to have the return of track season, but you know, really none of the, none of the tourists or, or far less of the tourists than would be flocking to the spa city this time of year in normal times. It's definitely a different year, 2020. You yeah. got to give it that credit. But you can read about the track season and all those other stories that we talked about on timesunion.com. Thanks a lot, Casey, for the update. Thanks, Jess. After the break, genetic genealogy and how it led to a very special meeting between a father and daughter in the Adirondacks. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. 
go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Have you ever taken one of those genetic ancestry tests? If you have, were the results what you expected? Reporter Lee Hornbeck met a Vietnamese-born American woman from Virginia who recently got some very unexpected results. And they led her to a family she never knew she had at the foot of the Adirondacks. After I had found out that, um, that I wasn't who I thought I was. She had seen a picture of me, you know, so. Uh... Now tell me the backstory. What, what led to this moment? Kim Ramsey's 48 years old. She has three kids. Uh, she, as far as she knew, her mom's Vietnamese. Kim was born in Vietnam. Uh, her father was a Filipino-American soldier. Uh, he was from the Philippines, but joined the American army and fought in Vietnam. They moved, the three of them, her mom and dad, from Vietnam to the United States when Kim was three months old. And she resembles her mom. She resembled her siblings. There was no reason for it ever think, you know, I asked her, were you looking? Did you know that the man who raised you wasn't your biological father? And she said, absolutely not. There was a special on 23andMe. And my coworkers and I did it for fun. So she sits down one night this past winter between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and she opens her results and she sees Asian, you know, Vietnamese, okay scrolls down expecting to see Filipino, expecting to see that is her ethnicity and it's European and British and Irish. And she just was so shocked and didn't really know what to do with that initially. You know, it, it's one thing I think there's been a lot of these 23andMe or Ancestry.com stories around the United States about people who using it successfully to find their biological family she was not looking for that. She had no reason to think that her father was not her father. So, so then there were questions to ask, you know? So her mother lives with her. Kim does not have a relationship with her father, her father who raised her. Her parents divorced when Kim was 12 and her father stopped talking to her when she was 19, when she had her first baby. So she couldn't ask him and she had to ask her mother and her description of asking her mother. She said she waited until after the holidays. She waited for a moment when she and her mother would be alone together. And she had to drive her mother somewhere to, for an errand. She's looking in the rearview mirror and tells her, I had my DNA tested and this is what I discovered, you know, in so many words. And her mother was like, no, that's just a scam. That was a waste of money. And, you know, you can't believe those things. Kim's like, I'm not mad. I just want to know, did my father know I wasn't his? And did my biological father know about me? So she confronts her mother. Her mother denies it. And what happens next? So her mother only briefly denied it. She came around to it. She was like, yeah, and your father who raised you, you know, her ex-husband knew about it. Um, he could do the math, you know, he figured it out and didn't make an issue out of it. Raised Kim like he was his own. You know, Kim says, looking back in my childhood, there was no difference between how I was treated and my siblings were treated. She's just gotten her mother to confront the truth. And then what? So the other thing that the 23andMe report showed her was in addition to this ethnic makeup 
that she didn't expect. She had a half brother. After I had found out that um, that I wasn't who I thought I was, um, and the twenty three in me confirms your, you know, your ethnic background. <clears throat> I had sent a request to Brian um, and got a little nervous and had unrequested, um, but he ended up reaching out to me about a month or so after, after all the, all the holidays, and um, we communicated through messaging and emails and And they started corresponding and they put it together. He's like, yes, my father was in Vietnam in, you know, from 1967 into the early seventies and Kim was born in 1971. She would have been conceived in late 1970. He asked her, do you mind if I forward your contact information to our father? He then had to tell his father, Hey, I got some news. Rob Lee initially denied it as you would, you'd be like, I don't remember this. I don't never knew about this. It was not a, not a matter of, he got a note from this woman. There was nothing. He had, had no idea. 48 years had no idea. Wow. So Rob Lee and Kim Ramsey start talking. And then Rob had a layover in Washington in February in the DC airport. And she came in and they met. I wasn't, sure I, what, I wasn't sure what to expect, you know, there's this pretty blonde-haired lady sitting there, you know, and she kind of pointed to herself, you know, you know she had seen a picture of me, you know, so, uh, yeah, it was great, and we sat down, and I tried to get her to eat and have a drink and all that, trying to, you know. Uh, I was so nervous. Uh, I had one French fry. <laughs> but what was, what was really sweet was when he left goodbye, we waved goodbye and stuff. Yeah. I was walking away and she's standing there smiling at me. That was sweet. I just wanted to make sure he checked back in. Okay. (laughs) It's important to know, I think, for this story that Rob is this tremendously gregarious, jokester, talker, storyteller. You know, he's been through some really hard things in his life, but your impression of him is always that life has been a party. You know, he likes a good time. He's a warm guy. And they, she said that they just started talking like they had always known each other. And he was delighted. And part of the reason that it was so meaningful to him is he'd had four children with his now ex-wife. One of his daughters died 10 years ago. And he said, I feel like I found a new daughter. You know, not to say that anybody's replacing anyone else, but it was very poignant to them to say, like, I have this daughter. And plus... He has three kind of new grandchildren. They just really, they embraced it. Now, there are parts of the story that I don't know. There's people who didn't talk to me for this. Rob Lee has an ex-wife. Don't know how she feels about this. Don't know if she knows. <laughs> and uh, I would have also loved to have talked to Kim's estranged father, you know, to ask him some questions. Because I think that's a lot to say. This woman that I was dating at the time conceived this baby unbeknownst to me and then I they raised her together and was he married when this happened was Rob married yes so what happened was he was the army special forces and they spent a lot of time in small units in the woods running operations to try to keep the North Vietnamese army from infiltrating into the south he was stationed way in the southern end of, of Vietnam at the border with Cambodia and 
he says he came out of the woods from a particularly bad, you know, lost a guy, died in his arms, kind of nightmare war story. And his wife had sent him a Dear John letter. So that it was that weekend that he went out and met Kim's mom and the magic happened and Kim was created. And so Brock really feels regretful in the sense that he wished that he could remember more detail. You know, Kim has a lot of questions because her mother does not talk about Vietnam, does not want to share, does not. I think this woman probably went through a great deal of trauma and is not interested in reliving it or talking about it. And there's just questions that'll be unanswered because it was five decades ago. Sure. Now, is there any sense that maybe her biological dad and her biological mom will ever meet? I do not get that sense. She knew, so Kim's mother knew that Kim was taking this road trip to the Adirondacks with the children to, to meet the extended family. And she said to say hi. And this was apparently a big deal. Wow. Kim said, it's a big deal that my mother said that. You know, I don't get from this, not having talked to everybody in this story, but I don't get from this, there's a lot of bitterness or anger or any of those things. I, I just think that it was this kind of nice surprise. And for Kim, she hasn't, she's 49 and she hasn't had a relation. She's told me that she has not had a relationship with her father since she was 19. Her parents divorced, her father remarried. He was stationed in Germany for a lot of Kim's teenage years. Then they had this falling out. So she's been kind of fatherless, you know, in her view for a long time. And a very exciting moment for her was she called Rob on Father's Day. It was like, I get to wish somebody a happy Father's Day. It's been a long time. That's so special. So it's, it's cool. I mean, there's a lot of ways to look at this. You know, it was irresponsible. It was all these things. And, and Rob feels, you know, he's 76 years old and he's had this long and eventful life. And he says, you know, she has three great kids and I went on, I had, I had my kids and, you know, it is what it is. And I'm just thrilled at this point to have them be part of my life. That's a great story. That's a really, a really good way for something like that to turn out because you hear a lot of stories about family secrets buried that got unearthed because of something like, you know, Ancestry or 23andMe. And then there's been a lot of stories, you know, circulating in the media about the, you know, unhappy endings and of course the Golden State Killer. But, you know, tell me more about the family reunion. You kind of were a fly on the wall, right? Yeah, so they had planned this party and then COVID-19 came. So I, out of safety precautions, because people were coming in from different parts of the country, I did not go to the actual party. I was at the house as everyone was arriving and some of Rob Lee's grown children had been in the area for a couple of days. We're staying in hotels nearby, this kind of thing. And everyone's kind of like coming to hang out, expecting, you know, Kim to arrive. I asked them, you know, do you study her? Do you look for signs of your father's face and her face? Because she doesn't look like him. She maybe, maybe the shape of her face, you know, she's kind of a rounder face and he's a real round guy. He's got really, really blue eyes. And that was the big question. Like when they meet, is she going to have Rob's eyes? You know, that's kind of his like really striking feature that he's passed on to other children. And she does not. She's got brown eyes. They were so, and her children too were like super friendly, like super, they're just excited about this. They don't seem to think they've had some time to process it. They don't seem to think it's weird. They just are thrilled. They're like, 
you know, our own family's a little dysfunctional, you know, because they don't have, they don't know their grandfather, you know, the way Kim describes it is her mother lives with her, has lived with her for a couple years, but they're not close. Like there's some things like that. So the daughters who range in age from 29 to 15 are just like here for a good time. Did they give you any idea of what the future is going to be like? Are they going to keep you know, visiting each other, they, they're going to stay in contact, obviously. Did they have, you know, give you a sense of that? I talked to everybody about a week afterwards when they'd had, you know, Kim had gone home and gone back to work, had, a ta- you know, time to kind of process it. So when I talked to Kim about that, she said, you know, our relationship is growing. We are going to have more time to to build this up. And she's like, I'm really excited and they're going to kind of take it as it comes. You know, COVID-19 probably plays a role in keeping them apart for right now. But my sense is they will definitely see more of each other. I would, I would hope there'll be more trips by the Ramsey family up north to, to spend more time in Minerva. I know they went to Minerva Lake and they swam and they played tourist and, and all that stuff. And I think it was really exciting for them. That's wonderful. And for you, too, this was a happy, fun, feel-good story, you know, amid stories that might not have such a, you know, uplifting beat to them these days, right? I got into this work just to gather family stories and sit in people's living rooms and listen and and be honored by their sharing their stories with me. This is why I do this. I, I love the, like, I always describe it as a story with the blood and guts element, like that has real human, human heart to it. Sometimes those stories are really hard to talk about. You know, you're asking people really intrusive questions. I just basically, I feel honored when anyone ever wants to share this kind of personal thing with me and that I get to, I get to tell it. That's so great. That's a great cap to this interview. Thank you so much for taking me through this story and telling me all of it, all about this wonderful trip. Thank you. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. And please stay healthy out there.